Good morning, everyone. I hope you're all keeping well. I'd like to start the week off with just sharing some news with you. And that news is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For some of us, this will be the greatest news we'll ever hear. And for others, it'll be the most dreadful news. But I want to look at the fearful aspect of this news first. So as we just read, the chapter opens with John the Baptist. Uh, he was a preacher. He preached generally in the wilderness of Judea. He wasn't an ordinary Hebrew preacher. He was an outsider among other rabbis. He had long hair, had a beard. He was very kind of rustic almost. Uh, and his methods and means and his message were very controversial among other rabbis. He was not really looked at favorably among his contemporaries. So his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was informing the people that the kingdom of heaven was coming, something that the Jewish people were waiting for a long time, and that it wasn't good news for them. In fact, he calls them to repentance in spite of it. It was a warning. And if you'll see in verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John was the fulfillment of this prophecy. He was making straight the path for the Messiah. In verse 4, it talks about the clothes he wore and the food he ate. So Matthew is pointing this out here to show that John fulfills another prophecy, a prophecy um, prophesied by the prophet Malachi in chapter 5, verse 4, that another prophet, <laughs> a lot of prophets, Elijah would return. And Elijah was a very famed prophet, and Matthew added this in to add credibility to John because John and Elijah were very similar, Elijah, and they, they ate the same, they dressed the same, they were just very, very similar characters altogether. And the prophets of the Old Testament were special men who had direct contact with God, and God would speak to his people through them. Prophets like this had been seen in Israel for about 400 years, so the people were in dire need of a prophet like John, like Elijah. So the people were drawn to him, they saw the similarities, of the old prophets, and they went to him. They were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. So with this in mind, this baptism, this, it mentions baptism, I'd like to just talk about baptism very briefly, and the tradition of it in the first century, because it's not quite the same as how we, have, how we have it now. So baptism was one of many rituals that a Gentile would have to go through to be brought into a Jewish family. So one of them was obviously circumcision, but baptism, they had to be immersed into a tank. So for John to be baptizing Hebrews, and baptism being a tradition that was used for Gentiles to be brought into a Hebrew family, was very, very controversial. because It was just, why would you do it? What's, what's the point? Well, I believe John was, was baptizing these people to make a statement that these were on the same level as the Gentiles, that they needed to repent of their sins and confess their sins just as much as anyone else. They weren't, they weren't safe. <laughs> Many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to the baptisms, as seen in the beginning of verse 7. So with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, just to briefly touch on them, these were two rival schools of thought within the Jewish community. The Pharisees believed in more supernatural aspects of the faith, so they believed in heaven and hell, angels, and maybe not so much demons. And the, Phar and the Sadducees sorry, were more scholars, they were more aristocrats, they were, they were thought provocative people, they kind of thought about the law, they didn't, they weren't priests, they were more scholars. But either way, John did not take kindly to them at all. 
And we see in his initial interactions with them in the chapter that he, he calls them a brood of vipers and asks, who warned them of this wrath that's coming towards them? That's a very scary thing to, it's like someone going to the Pope and, and telling them the wrath of God is coming for him. It was very, very brash. So I just want to look at this wrath to come because that's such a scary, scary thing to, to hear, and especially for those people. This wrath to come that John was talking about is God exacting his justice on those who deserve it. There are many examples of this scene in the Old Testament, uh, one of which that comes to my mind is found in Genesis 19, where God rained sulfur and, rain and fire on the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sinful depravity. So we see in Genesis that those towns and their occupants deserve that wrath because of their perverse, sinful nature. They deserved it. And it's easy for us to look and just say, that was just. So who deserves this wrath that's coming? We're not the bad. The Pharisees certainly didn't seem to think it was them. They didn't think they were the bad guys. They thought they were, they thought they were the good guys. They thought they were the moral law keepers. They thought when the kingdom of heaven was coming, they were going to be nearly the generals. So John sees this, and he gives them two stern commands. He tells them to bear fruit in keeping repent, repentance in verse 8. And in verse 9, he says, which is also very important for us here, is do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, these two phrases that John gives them almost orders are very impactful and very relevant to the Pharisees and the Sadducees just as they are to us today. So I'd like to look at them and kind of explain what this means for us. So the first thing is bear fruit in keeping out repentance. So one of the things I'd like to point out is that it's in the present tense. It's bear fruit in keeping. It's not bear fruit and call it quits. It's you have to continually do this as often as we can. We can't just say, okay, God, we're, we're done now. We've repented of our sins. Let's, let's move forward. We have to keep on. We have to have this mindset. We have to keep bearing fruit. We have to keep repenting as often as we can. The second one now is a little bit more complicated. So he says, do not, I'll read it again. He says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So if you don't know who Abraham was, he was almost, he's the patriarch of the Jewish faith. So God made a covenant with Abraham, and that started all of this. So the covenant was that if Abraham followed God, then God would make Abraham descendants of many nations. So John is getting at, like, just because you're the chosen people, that, that doesn't mean that you're safe. You can't, just, you can't just coast by on this mentality. So aimed at the high priest, this meant, yeah, they could not presume to have right standing because of their heritage because of their positions as high priest, they couldn't just say, look, to, look to God and say, we keep, the, we keep your loss, you treat us right. And for us today, we, we, can't, we can't do the same thing. We can't look to God and say that we read our Bibles every day or we go to church or we preach a sermon or we never miss a Sunday or we go to all the Bible studies or we come from a Christian family. That's just, that's not enough. We can't look at God and say, you better treat us with well because because of this of these things and that's not what i'm saying this these, i'm not saying that these are these are bad things i'm not saying that we we shouldn't read our bibles these are important things but we can't presume 
to have a right standing with God on the basis of them. The only thing, the only thing we can presume on is our sinful nature in our relationship with God. So the question right now you might be thinking is, well, why? Why do we have to bear fruit in keeping up repentance? Why can't we presume on the good things we do? I mean, they're, they're good things that we're doing. They're, we're reading our Bibles. We're being committed Christians. So surely that, that's enough. Do we really have that much to repent of? We could be doing a lot worse, selling drugs or stealing or blaspheming or you know any number of things we could be doing. But with this mindset, the Bible has very, very strong and serious objections to that. So I would like to turn your attention to the Apostle Paul, if possible. So in Romans 2, chapter 12, or sorry, Romans 2, yeah, verses 12 to 18, if you can turn your Bibles there. If not, I've got it here, I can read it out. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Another, um, if you have your Bibles on it, another couple of verses I'd like to turn your attention to is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 4. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So I picked those two verses just to hammer, hammer this point home, that people have the mentality that I'm not a bad person, I just do bad things. And the Bible says otherwise. It says, no, your core, you're fundamentally... That's not the case. You do bad things, and you are a bad person. There's no, there, there, there isn't any good. Paul says no one does good, not even one. And that's why we can't look to God and presume on anything. That's why this wrath is coming for the Pharisees and for us today. So what does God do with, <laughs> with a lot like us? Well, Paul, uh, well, sorry, well, John, being a prophet, is going to tell us. In verse 10, John says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree, meaning that God fully intends to bring justice, like he did to Sodom and Gomorrah and to numerous others in the Old Testament. In verse 11, he says that any tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So it's not looking like we bear good fruit as of right now. It's, it's, not, it's not looking good for us. This is why John calls us to repentance in the wake of the kingdom coming. It's not a celebration. It's not a, the kingdom's coming, let's, let's go, let's overthrow the Romans. It's, uh, it's coming for you, you people. It, that, that's, that's what it is. 
So it's a very dire warning that John is trying to get across. So the, I think the point he's getting across, and I think the point Matthew is getting across here is that in ourselves, there isn't any hope for any of us. But luckily, Matthew doesn't end the chapter here. And it wouldn't be good news and it wouldn't be great to hear on a Sunday that, that this is the reality we're in. So there is much more to the chapter and to our potential relationship with God. In verse 11, John tells us that there's one coming after him who is far mightier than he is, to such an extent that John isn't even worthy to carry his sandals. That's pretty rash. This, this, this guy is hurling, well, in, in Irish slang term, hurling abuse at these Pharisees, these religious leaders, and now he's taking a step back and saying, but there's, there's someone coming who I'm not even worthy to, to carry your sandals. You think my judgment is bad. This guy is far greater than I am. If we thought John was intimidating, this one coming is the one that we should fear. His paths are the one that John has been called to make straight. He tells us that he'll baptize us with the Holy Spirit and fire, so that the Spirit is to transform our hearts and the fire is to purify us. In verse 12, he tells us that this one who is coming will be the instrument of this judgment. His winnowing fork is in his, in verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat, his wheat into the barren, but the chaff will be burnt with unquenchable fire. So one aspect I'd, that really jumped out at me here when I was reading through this is that he will gather his wheat into the barren. So we've gone from no one to this guy is going to take some people into his barren with him. It's a big, big leap. So who will, who will be spared this judgment? Who will go with him to the barren? So that begs the question, who is his wheat? Who's this wheat that John is talking about? Who are these people that are going to be taken back with, with, this, with the one that's coming. So if you guys could just keep that in the back of your head, I'll get back to that, that weak question later. So in verse 13, Jesus enters the, enters the scene. He's the one that John has been preparing people for. And in shocking fashion, he comes to be baptized by John. Very, very just... John, being awestruck, tells him, it should be the other way around. In verse 14, it says, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So John is just, he's, he's hyping this guy up, and he's getting the people ready for this, for this judgment, that this guy is going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he humbly comes and asks John the Baptist, who can merely baptize you with water, to be baptized by him. So that's a, like, like John, like, like John, I feel like we all would ask that question, why? Why, would, why, why, would, why do I need to baptize you? And luckily, Jesus gives us an answer. And it might be one of the most important verses in the whole Bible in verse 15. It, Jesus says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's a pretty tricky response. What does it, what does this, fulfill all righteousness mean? What does this mean? As we highlighted, as, as Paul, luckily, highlighted, we can't live a righteous life. We can try, and we can try, and we can try, but we'll fall short every time. It's just not in us. We're fallen creatures. 
So when Jesus says, fulfill all righteousness, that means, that means he's going to live the righteous God-honoring life. Again, Paul says that no one seeks after God, not one, but Jesus does. Jesus wholeheartedly seeks after God, follows him every step of the way. His will is God's will. The Son's will is the will of the Father. And that's something we could never accomplish. That's what he means to fulfill all righteousness. He means that he's going to live this righteous life for me, for Natalie, for Jason, for Dara, for Emeka. All righteousness means past, present, and, fu and future, and for everybody. The righteous life we cannot live, the righteous life we try to live but can't and fail time and time again, the righteous life we've just fundamentally can't because of her fallen, sinful nature has been lived for us by Jesus, wholeheartedly and fully. And we see, we see affirmation from God himself audibly, verbally says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove. So all of this, that Jesus doesn't just say, I'm, he's not a motivational speaker. He doesn't come on the scene and say, I'm going to li live your best life or whatever. He, he is affirmed by God himself audibly. And the spirit of God descends upon him. So Jesus' intentions are solid and he follows them through this desire to seek God in Jesus or this desire to follow God that we see in Jesus here we see penultimately at the cross where Jesus died and paid the price he lived the righteous life that we couldn't live and then he died the death he bore this wrath that was due to us himself. He took it on his back. He carried that cross and was then crucified and nailed, all for us. And it shows his love for us, but it also shows his love for God and that that was, his, that was God's will for us. He didn't, he didn't stop and say, no. He, said, he didn't turn around halfway and say, good luck to this. These, these people don't deserve this. He kept powering through. And along the way, these people that he was dying for betrayed him, turned their backs on him, denied him three times. The very people he came to save led him to that cross. They, they crucified him. But that didn't stop him. He sought after God. And he did it all for us. So to bring it back to that question about who, who, is, who is the wheat that John talks about, that will be gathered into his barn. If we kind of take a step back and look at the scene in which Jesus is baptized, we see that loads of people were being baptized by John prior. So there was these were sinners he was baptized with. He takes a stand with the sinner. He takes a stand with people like you and me. This is his, these, are, these people are his wheat. We are his wheat that he laid his life down for. So that, we, so that his righteousness, the righteous life that he lived, could be credited to us. And that's good news. So in, in, in closing, without Jesus, the kingdom of heaven being at hand, it's not good news. It means wrath coming. But with Jesus, with, with the righteous life that Jesus lived, with the life he lived, with the love that Jesus showed on us, it means righteousness fulfilled. It means wrath satisfied. It means 
we can be we can be beloved by God. Tim Keller gave a quote that um, the beloved has become forsaken and now the forsaken is now the beloved. So in, in closing, will you trust Jesus to live that life, to live the life you can't live no matter how hard you try, to live the life that you, you, a lot of the time you don't want to live? Will you trust in him to do that? And will you trust in him to die that death that you should have died also, to bear that wrath that was coming justly for us all. I pray that you would. Um, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy that you have on us, Lord. We thank you for the righteous life that Jesus Christ lived for us, the right and the, the death he died for us too, Lord. We thank you that that's, that that's enough. Lord God, we thank you that we could be here together as a symbol of that, of that righteous life, that, that you could bring people like, like us all together to worship you and to, to seek you, Lord, that you draw us all together and you draw us individually and collectively as a church to you, Lord, and that you do it all for your name. So just I pray in the coming week that we would all just seek after you, that our hearts and souls and minds would be just fixated on you, Lord, and that we would all, that your spirit would lead us to seek you, Lord, and that we would do it all in Jesus' name. Amen.